An introduction to Dante's Paradiso. The pilgrim reader will have noted a gradual change in the tone of Dante's language from the beginning of his tale, the dark wood onwards. It moves from the suavity of Francesca to the bitterness of Ugolino, from the screeches of fiends and the abuses of damned souls to the increasing courtesy of purgatory. This courteous exchange of friendship eventually resolves itself in the refinement of, of expression to be found in the Cantica's last great cantos when Dante is reunited with Beatrice. The gradual change prepares us for paradise, the Cantica, in which the poet lifts his poetry to new expressive heights. Those readers who fail to progress further than hell verily have their rewards. For hell is, I suppose, to the modern mind, rather like a continued diet of films and videos. Those who are true seekers are soon fascinated by the light of the stars, that is, the world of archetypes, and eagerly progress up the mountain's cornices towards that which they intuitively, intuitively recognise as home. Paradise, where known, is the reward for all those readers who have found themselves at home in Dante's little bark of intellect. That little bark, that little boat, um, you'll find in Purgatory, Canto 1, um, verse 2. Suddenly all the efforts made whilst reading 67 cantos may well seem like a physical effort made in order to gain height on hills or mountains in order to view a fine landscape. It's a sad judgment that few today bother to read the greatest of the canticles, saying that it is outmoded, medieval, lacking immediacy, no longer relevant, and so on. Understanding the Paradiso. If we exclude the Ptolemaic universe from our minds, simply because that of Copernicus has superseded it, then we lose the foundations not only of the Commedia, but much of the West's cultural inheritance, as well as an understanding of archaic and oriental civilizations. Ptolemy's cosmology, together with, the, with other ancient cosmologies, is based on what the eye can see without the aid of telescopes. And what the eye can see in the heavens are not only the patterns made by the stars, but also the movements of the sun, moon, planets, as they too form patterns in a cosmic dance. 
only the earth seems not to move. Even the clouds appear to move over our heads as we stand still. The earth seems solid. Gravity holds us to it. It is our abode where we make our homes and live out our daily lives. That which is above us was once termed the macrocosm and it was understood to be reflected in that which is here below, the microcosm. Reflections of the heavens were considered to be waiting to be found, mapped out on the earth's crust, in the growth structure of plant life. Even the bones in deep centres of our body were considered to be ideally proportioned according to the heavens above and somehow influenced by the planets. The more one studies the ancient science, the more one realises our ancestors had what we have not, an integrated system holding together the whole of life, from the corporal to the mental, from the psychic to the spiritual. Would you exchange Traherne's immortal wheat or Dante's Beatrice for what is on offer on the modernity's a la carte menu? To lose the knowledge of the immortal wheat and to replace it with GM crops is indeed the work of the evil one. To be blind and unable to see or to know Beatrice is to opt for Jezebel or Rahab, and that is yet another victory for Belzebub. The meaning of the Paradiso. What is Dante's Paradiso about? Does he really mean us to believe that he flew up through space like a modern rocket? Of course not. Echoes of the demythologizers of recent years and their inability to come to terms with the meaning of the ascension of our Lord come to mind. Dante has given enough hints as to the danger of wanting to know more than is good for us and that a vain curiosity leads us ultimately to the malabolgy of the counsellors of fraud. Surely Dante would cast down to the malibolgy all manipulators of science, from space exploration to the perverse exploitation of manatrice, say from Napalm to cloning, from surrogate motherhood to embryological experimentation. Dante is speaking of the understanding of space which modern man has forgotten and which he has substituted with bad and often perverse dreams. Dante is concerned with the space of our consciousness that may travel from the lowest point of hell's abyss to the celestial rose of paradise. The immortal wheat and the little girl are without in the extension of outward space and time, 
but the true immortal wheat and the true Beatrice are within, concealed from the profane due to the infinity of wisdom, knowledge and love. Such is the space of which Dante speaks. But surely we've already known paradise. It was revealed to us in our childhood. As we grew up to maturity, gradually lesser loves through the spirit were pruned away. But foolishly, even so, we lost the clarity of the original epiphany of our childhood. However, in moments of stillness, its radiance still haunted the mind. Such, it, such was its radiance that we too had to descend in order to ascend to the fullness of paradise's promise of wholeness. So what is Dante's paradiso all about? What is signified by his ascent to the ten heavens? Surely the answer lies with Beatrice, for she is all that we need in order to embark on Dante's little ship of intellect. There is a riddle here to be solved. An overall view of the 33 cantos of the Paradiso tells us that we are called to participate in the uncreated light and to eventually behold a vision of God. In brief, paradise has to seep into every fibre of our being. In this, our union with Beatrice is essential. For as Dante beholds the beauty of the light of her eyes, so he ascends. Without knowing her, the poet would say, nothing is possible. Trahonians will be quick to add that surely Dante has also seen glimpses of paradise in nature. His descriptions and analogies with the created order are memorable. The Inferno was full of allusions to nature. So was the Purgatorio. But on checking through, there were less references to nature than in the Inferno. And there will be even less in the Paradiso. What does the author imply by this? Critics will say that underlying Dante's concept of nature is a touch of Augustinian dualism. Paradise frees us from the bonds of nature. Such a line of thought does link into that hatred of nature to be found in St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Dominic and their ruthless destruction of innocent birds that got in their way. But remember Dante was a Franciscan at heart, practicing a rule of life, and furthermore it takes little insight to recognize the fact that the poet's sensitivity towards nature has empathy 
with the Poverello of Assisi. The elements of their manifestations suggest so much to him, be they the earth, water, air or fire, as seen whilst on the dikes near to Wisson, not far from Calais, that was in hell. Unfortunately, I haven't put the reference down. I apologise. The rain-filled mud that torments the gluttonous, crystal clear springs, gentle breezes, birds on the wing, goats on the hillside, or the fire that burns or purifies. Dante is more subtle than the Augustinians would allow him. The answer is simple. He loses nothing of the creation as he progresses. Rather, the frequency of his drawing analogies from nature diminishes as the poem progresses from the tactile to the intellectual. Hell has much to do with the passions and the misuse of the senses. Purgatory led us to the joy of courtesy and friendship. With the Paradiso, we step into the spiritual and intellectual worlds and participate in the light that enlightens every man who comes into this world, even if he negates it. Paradise as Contemplation But what is Paradise about? We still have not given a precise answer. It is about contemplation, right contemplation, contemplation on the right degrees of knowledge which nourish wisdom within us. It is not concerned with dubious systems of meditation or a quick fix for floating up to heaven or having a vision of God. All such enterprises are psychic delusions. And the Desert Fathers were blunt. If you see a man floating up to heaven, catch him by his foot without delay and drag him down quick. The psychic, Lucifer, and his spirits of the air, for Dante, are quite definitely in hell. The Paradiso emphatically has nothing to do with the culture of false prophets that came to the surface in particular during the 60s, nor with any New Age sect. Dante's understanding of prophecy will be discussed when we find the soul of Joachim of Flora in the heaven of the sun. Dante's Ten Heavens the, God, the lover is reunited with his beloved in the garden of earthly innocence. Therefore, this earth, this very spot where you and I are, is potentially the footstool of what is above. In other words, it is the kingdom. Malkut in Hebrew. It is enough to refer back 
to the descriptions of the sacred wood and the stream of Lethe to know that Dante is speaking of seeing this world in its perfection as the recipient of all that is above. It is seeing the world aright as Traherne taught, acknowledging it as does the Benedicity or the song of the three children in the burning fiery furnace, or, say, in Psalm 104, with which Orthodox Vespers commences evening by evening by evening. The creation is a mirror ever praising its archetypes. If you look in the prayer book at the Benedicity, wind, rain, ice, frost and cold, I spelt with capitals, wind, rain, ice, frost, cold. Not mere wind, rain, ice, frost and cold. <clears throat> I admit it, this is very hard to do when walking or cycling into a headwind of cold sleet wet through and with one's hands about to get frostbite. But even then we remember our home, the warmth of the hearth, the food and drink that we all share. For all such pleasures are also of the kingdom. That is, if we permit the Lord to be in our hearts. The kingdom in this sense was, is, and is yet to come in its fullness. It is the petition of our Lord told us to make <clears throat> when we acknowledge our Father who is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Look above with Dante's eyes and what do we see? We see the moon, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, and if you've got better eyes than mine, Jupiter, Saturn, and of course the stars. And then beyond sight, the Ptolemaic cosmological system informed him there was the Primum Mobile and the Empyrean. With our feet firmly on the earth, above us we see the visible planets the moon, the sun and the stars. If the Paradiso is about contemplation, what do we mean by contemplation here? Certainly not the sky at night with Patrick Moore. Consider the words lunar, mercurial, venereal, solar. Do we not have certain qualities suggested to us. For example, change, fickle, sexual, happiness. Again, biological rhythms, rapid movement, love, growth. Look again at the gods associated with the Ptolemaic planets. Diana, that's the moon, Mercury, Venus, Apollo, that's the Sun, Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. 
Surely each one conveys a richness of myth. The virgin huntress who turned Acturn into a stag. The god of thieves with a gift of the gab and philosophical insight. An earthly, fickle or heavenly Venus. The god who stripped Marcius of his skin for his presumption. The god with a harp or a lute who invokes harmony. And don't forget his friend Bacchus. He can disrupt everything. What a contrast to the god of war, vengeance, strife, the lover of the earthly Venus. Then we have a god who is authoritarian, but who meddles within individuals, who likes order, decision, and is also endeared by a sense of humour. Jupiter. Lastly, a god who eats his own children, prone to deep melancholia. The list of attributes and association of ideas could grow and grow. Dante would have pointed out that it is easy to see how on one level, the planets and their gods relate to our passions. Indeed, the playing out of our comedies and tragedies of life are the results of their energies taking up residence within us. He's lost his wits. He's a lunatic. He's schizophrenic, inconstant. He's good at the horses. Here place a bet and win. She's had twenty lovers already, but she's still my Beatrice. Watch him, he may explode with energy any moment, good or bad. He'll not rest until he's had his vengeance, for he can't forgive. Don't worry, he'll get everything sorted out. But be beware, he has a wicked sense of humour. He's a true artist. Mopes about, complains of everything, and gets so depressed that one day, if he's not careful, he commits suicide. Surely paradise cannot be made up of such a bunch. But the beginning of right contemplation of paradise helps to subdue the passionate life even harness it like St. George taming the dragon rather than killing it. You know that in the real story of St. George, St. George doesn't kill the dragon, he tames it and takes the dragon back and it becomes a very repentant and good dragon and helps working in the fields and helping everybody. Of course, that's a deep um, image. Right contemplation, sorry, I, I've skipped a, a sentence. Hell and purgatory have been tamed. Right contemplation opens our hearts to receive grace to start taming the passions, setting them in right context, unmasking the spirits with their perverse suggestions. 
if we are to rediscover the Adamic vocation of looking after the garden that has been delivered into our charge, then we must begin by doing just that. You can't run away from the passionate life, but rightly harnessed, it will be the secret of much of our energy. Dante went through all that unseen warfare as he toiled back to the garden or sacred wood, as he calls it. Though we are looking upwards with the illusion of ascending, we are in fact recipients of that which is above. It is a matter of casting out the negative and opening the heart to receive that which is already all about us. I would suggest to you that there are four main themes which underlie a positive approach to Dante's Paradiso. These are understanding the inner significance of the commandments, a right understanding of the nature of education, the ministry of the angels, the right understanding of the significance of sound and music, the contemplation of the commandments. Purgatory was grounded on the classical virtues. The theological virtues only gradually made themselves known. Paradise must consequently be the fulfilment of the law through the grace-given love that comes through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But in the order of things, those Ten Commandments revealed on Mount Sinai must be somehow related to the earth and the heavens above. For example, if the earthly paradise that Dante and Beatrice find themselves in has a law, it must surely be thou shalt not covet. In paradise, one may possess nothing, only share. The winged life, to quote Blake, is too easily destroyed. Too easily we are corrupted and made to learn the dirty devices of this world, Traherne. It does not take much insight to recognise that the injunction against coveting must be the essential key to understanding the nature of paradise. A total lack of coveting must be the flow of the celestial life. The spiritual life calls us to overcome those passions that lead us to coveting. Not to covet is therefore a fundamental natural law of life. Coveting, as we have seen demonstrated in hell and purged in purgatory, 
come through an evil love based in the selfhood, the ego. We must ever be watchful and never allow the urge to covet, to pass over from the temptations of the mind to the will. The kingdom, therefore, is a total lack of coveting. The kingdom is the fluidity of the will through the grace of the Holy Spirit so that our will never hardens into a willful ego. It is the necessary condition of the inner life in order to receive that which God wishes to offer. It makes us sons and daughters of God. It gives us true nobility and not subordination. The total absence of covetousness is the expression of the Lord in this world. A complete lack of covetousness will draw, figuratively speaking, all that is above down to us. It also takes a step further, and that is that we learn to become totally dependent on what God offers us. King David learnt the hard way. He coveted Uriah's wife Bathsheba. This is, you can find all this in the second book of Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. His unbridled desire led him to perverse conduct, even the murder of her husband. The child born out of adultery was sickly and died. And the Lord God sent Nathan the poet to rebuke the king. Eventually David poured out his repentance in the 51st Psalm, a psalm which we all now use for our own penitence. Psalm 25 also refers to the quality of the soul of which we speak the recognition of one's sin. And to thee, O Lord, I will lift up my soul, turn thee unto me, have mercy on me, for I am desolate and in misery. For Dante, the example of a total lack of the sin of covetousness would have been the wandering friar who possessed nothing but who had, as he himself said, that is St. Francis, everything. I quote, St. Francis is Italian, Povertate e nulla avere, e nulla cosa puoi volere, e onne cosa possedere, en spirito di libertate. Poverty is to have nothing, and then to wish for nothing and everything to possess in the spirit of liberty. Exile had taught Dante many lessons regarding covetousness. Thus, the quality of, what, of which we speak is the kingdom, the presence of God, with and in his people, 
it is the soul of the church. Furthermore, and most important, not to covet, is to have faith. It is our essential connection with the life of the Spirit. Through faith, we acknowledge that Christ is King, the Cosmic Lord who knows, loves and judges us, the Pantocrator. Faith is the condition for receiving wisdom. That is why Beatrice, as an embodiment of wisdom, encounters Dante in the earthly paradise. He cannot arise with Beatrice without this essential quality of faith. That is a life devoid of covetousness. Faith connects us to God's wisdom and his energies. Faith, the opposite of covetousness, is at the essence of all good things. Lack of coveting, faith as Abraham and the saints knew and know it, is the embryo of all wisdom. And thus we become a vessel for God as the heart opens itself to receive the grace-giving, given love of the Spirit. It is the linchpin of the covenant, old and new, the finding of God's will in all things. Now this also depends on our own personal covenant with God. Essential to this is our own personal sexual covenant. It implies not only refraining from illicit relationships, but also on entering into a holy and permissible love. For when a man and a woman are joined together in matrimony, that's God's original intent, the kingdom is joined in their loving embrace. That is why our Lord honoured them the marriage at Cana with his presence, and why St Paul taught that the true that true marriage signifies the mystery of Christ and his church. One might, might add that all is an essential quality of the kingdom, where covetous is unknown. The more we come closer to God, and consequently the deep mystery of true love, the more we are filled with awe. For the place where we stand is recognised as holy. Suddenly, like the Jewish mystics of old, we recognise that the kingdoms are to be under that the sorry, we are we are to recognise that the commandments are to be understood inwardly as well as outwardly, that they are the stuff of Dante's contemplation on the meaning of paradise. The, king, the commandments are like Lady Julian of Norwich's hazelnut, hard on the outside, but containing a soft kernel within, which is the secret of the nut's fertility. The commandments, without their kernel, become barren law without understanding. 
And as we explore Dante's heavens, the inner significance of the king uh, of the commandments will be a fundamental consideration. I've got a little footnote note here. Dante's Commedia at its sources has given rise to much speculation. Some have seen in its structure Islamic Sufi parallels due to cultural exchange brought about by the Crusades. More convincing for myself is the argument of a Christian gnosis and the natural relationship through tradition, through tradition and the Bible with Hebraic thought. For example, Dante may have known rabbis or was aware of a line of thought which may be traced back to the works such as St. Ephraim. Whatever the case, our thoughts may only be speculation on the sources of the most ancient tradition. The mystery of free will was found in the central cantos of the Purgatorio and thereby indicated that free will is at the heart of our own commedia. We also noted that the mountain and its cornices were firmly established on the virtuous ethical life of the classical past. And paradise is rooted in the contemplation of the commandments, or better, the Torah, or way the Lord intended us to walk in the first place, the covenant of old. Christians too must walk this path, since the incarnate Lord came to fulfill and not to destroy. For he is the way, the fulfillment of the Torah, the life of the way, the truth of the way, the way is the mystery of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and our neighbour as ourselves. Next, education as initiation into paradise. As stressed before, William Law considered the true aim of education was to lead society back to paradise. Dante had already embraced the thought for another aspect of paradise is our contemplation of the structure of all genuine education. As Dorothy Sayers indicated long ago in a lecture, Dante's understanding of the nature of education would not have found favour with the present educational establishment. That paper is called The Lost Tools of Learning and it was presented in Oxford in 1947. If anyone uh, really desires it I can bring it in and we can make some photocopies of it if I can find it amongst all my papers. It is somewhere at home. And what I say here is very much um, inspired by Dorothy Sayers. The Paradiso underscores that the stages of a real education are tenfold, as are the heavens. The first seven 
are related to the planets and consist of the classical trivium and quadrivium, the last three relating to the heavens of the fixed stars, primum mobile, the empyrean, our natural philosophy, moral philosophy, and finally, theology. The trivium is concerned with how we communicate with each other, the structure of the words, the words we use, grammar, the organising of words to express a thought, logic, and the ability to force home our thought, rhetoric. Anyone who has received essays to mark at a higher education or establishment will know the failure of modern education in the respect. The results of freedom of expression and so-called creative writing would have reduced Dante either to tears or more likely knowing little of his disposition to anger. In the threefold structure of purification, illumination and union, which we have, which we have discussed in previous chapters, the trivium certainly belongs to the purif purification and training of our minds, involving essentially our will, learning our rhythmic tables or irregular French verbs is not accomplished without effort. Every subject has its grammar. Historians have to know their facts, so do scientists and so on. The students of languages, besides learning the grammar of their respective languages, must know the facts of the literature that they study. The same is the case for geography, mathematics, music, or whatever the subject may be. <coughs> Grammar is the essential tool for knowing and plotting out our subject. Logic leads us on to argument and criticism, and eventually the doors of the storehouse of knowledge, quote, Dorothy says, are thrown open, drawing out a person's gifts. Subjects will eventually be seen to be interrelated and that at the base of knowledge worth its salt is unity, agreement, not contradiction. Rhetoric enables interdisciplinary communication rather than being limited to our own small field of study. The right use of the trivium, the classical trivium, is a clearing of the decks, enabling real knowledge to begin. The classical quadrivium is essentially concerned with a person's illumination and memory in the classical Augustinian sense of consciousness. Arithmetic, music, geometry, astronomy were subjects related by the ancients to the science of number that was understood to be at the heart of the creation's mysteries, from the growth of a plant 
the understanding of the heavens above. When Simon Meyer, Donizetti's teacher, taught his students the science of music, he would quote a poem by the 18th century Italian poet Giovanni Marenzi, concerned with the Pythagorean and Platonic insights into the nature of music. The following verses illustrate well the classical background to Dante's um, thought. If truth was uttered by Pythagoras, says the poem, if in sovereign intellect number was the prime idea or archetype, when he fused his first idea with ice, thus tempering his heat, number was foremost in his thought desirous to form man, content and just. He grounded him in number, from which he had created this great mass, stars, moon, sun. Number was to be his first example, granting the spirit wings to rise to the divine temple. Since thus the soul is touched by numbers concord as a well-tempered heart utters divine and ardent ecstasy, what were the soul to hear the various sounds concert amongst themselves as spheres now slow, now fast, which travel the heavens? Why does not style, capital S, why does not style, lying sick within, beg strength from you, O muses, who on the banks of Agonipe, that's a spring on Mount Helicon and sacred to the muses, tune not merely golden harps, but even stars in their celestial cycles. Marinsi's poem leads us to, into understanding Dante's understanding of the relationship between the angelic intelligences and the heavens. But before coming to this aspect of the Paradiso, we must conclude with the poet's understanding of education, which is not related to the secular and its economy but to the paradisal and the eternal. Thus, the quadrivium is concerned essentially with a student's illumination, not with the acquisition of encyclopedic knowledge, but, as we know, Dante's knowledge uh, was immense. But essentially, illumination. What's the good of having um, all the volumes of the Encyclopedia to Britannica unless we are not enlightened by knowledge. This is the first step of education. Illumination is the expansion of our memory consciousness and this leads naturally to the final stage 
which is concerned with union. For in his will is our peace. So the study of natural and moral philosophy is of paramount importance. That is, philosophy as philosophia, the love of wisdom. And these two aspects of philosophy find their fulfillment in theology. And most important, Dante has demonstrated to his reader that theology is an integral part of spirituality, the stuff of our pilgrimage. It is not academic, it is not an academic subject, but learning to pray aright. You can see why Dorothy says, said that Dante's views on education wouldn't meet much um, much success today. But I believe he's basically right, fundamentally right. And the angelic intelligences. The angelic intelligences are fundamental to the structure of the paradiso and we will discuss their role in the light of Dante's source, St. Dionysius the Areopagite, when we come to the appropriate canto. Angels seem to be back in fashion once more, but only in a sentimental pictorial sense, a sort of pallid high Victorian Burne Jones. Angels are not myth, but spiritual reality. If our Lord as Pantocrator, the creator of all things, is like a conductor of a vast orchestra, then the angels are that indefinable energy which draws a great performance from the instrumentalists. They are the communicators par excellence. They are also guardians. If you allow them, you will soon learn they, that they love to organize. They are certainly protectors from accidents and disasters and arrange the most amazing meetings and friendships. Chance according to Dante, belongs to hell, as you'll remember. The angels, on the other hand, are known the moment we begin to embrace the inner life. Traditionally, there are nine orders in the angelic hierarchy. The first three relate to our union with God. The second three are concerned with our illumination, and the last three are guardians, purifiers. Let's quickly go through the order of the angels. The seraphim are all eyes, quotation marks, and ever behold the divine love. The cherubim are all eyes, and ever turn towards us and radiate the knowledge of the divine love. Effigies of the 
cherubim ever kept a watchful eye over the mercy seat in the temple's holy of holies. And that is why at the sacred moment of the great entrance of the procession of the divine gifts of the Orthodox liturgy, the faithful are said to mystically represent the cherubim singing the thrice holy hymn. We are caught up through grace of the Spirit in the knowledge that concentrates us on the mystery of divine love. The order of thrones draw together the love and the knowledge. The Theotokos, the Mother of God, sits on a cosmic throne with the Christ child on her knee. The icon at one level of, of interpretation speaks to us of this deep love between love and knowledge, revealing the incarnation. The seraphim, cherubim and thrones are communicating energies of the cosmic eros that draws all into union with the Holy Trinity. The orders of dominions, virtues and powers mediate and hand on such matters in order to illuminate us. For example, they elevate and free us from matter in, in the negative sense. They are unshakable virility and maternity, ordering and regulating the intellect. The principalities, archangels and angels purify and interpret. They preside over human hierarchies. That prince, princely principle within us all. They preside over human... Sorry, they, that prince, princely principle within us all. From king to queen to husband and wife, parent to child, from teacher to student, from friend to friend. Likewise, nations require guiding and protecting. You and I need our guardian angel to help us interpret the gifts of the Spirit. Such is a very brief outline of the ministry of the angelic intelligences. Dante will say much more when we reach Canto 27 of the Paradiso. Finally, music, the language of angels. Do angels have a language? Of course they do. They communicate in particular through musical sound. And Dante is very emphatic about this. The Paradiso resonates with music, of which our music-making, at its best, may be but an echo. Where does this celestial music come from? Dante again teaches very clearly that it originates in the divine light of the transfiguration, the Shekinah of the Lord God, 
that river of light from which Dante ultimately has to drink. Light, according to Dante, evokes movement in paradise, and the movement or dance creates spontaneously sound or music. And to this is intimately linked, is intimately linked language, the words used in communication. Hence, according to tradition, the true art of music is declamation. We know immediately where a composer or a musician is on a spiritual level, level by the quality of his or her ability to declaim the quality of the music that they are involved in. Boethius, a major source for Dante, writes in his book on, on music, there are three kinds of music. The first, the music of the universe. The second, human music. The third, instrumental music, as that of the chitarra or the tibbe or other instruments which serve for melody. The first is cosmic, the music of the spheres. But for Dante, higher than this is the transfiguring light, evoking movement and sound and music. This unheard music is, according to Plato, also to be found in the combination of the elements and the diversity of the seasons. It is a sound, it is a sound that does not penetrate our ears. <coughs> I can give you all these references to Plato at the end, if you want them. If still perplexed by Dante's thought, the flow from light of movement and music's sound, look at nature. Consider our sun as a symbol of the divine light or glory. Our sun stimulates the growth of plants, trees, vegetative as well as animal life. The sun's light and warmth causes the movement of the natural world. Movement is rhythmic, harmonic, lyrical, as may be seen in the flight of birds, the growth of plants, the opening of their flowers, the racing of animals across the plains the waddling of penguins, and so forth. <coughs> Consider the songs of birds, the mating calls of animals, the rustling of the wind amid the long grass, the flowing of a beck, the rumbling of thunder, and so on. All this, our light, movement, music is but a faint echo of the divine transfiguring light. The angelic intelligences, their movement, which precedes um, music. I've got a little star there, the note saying, consider Psalm 19. Let's look at another verse from Marinci's poem on music, quoted by Maher to his students. 
he sees the creation as, as a shell. Remember, you, you could make the early peoples made from shells and, and sound boxes and of musical instruments. That sonora shell, echoing the heavens' harmony, ineffable concert, what tongue can define? Since world is soul, tunes the heavens, plays now fast, now slow, she alone is leader and inspirer. This is the eternal arena through which resounds glory in the lightning flash in thunder. No living creature could describe that sound, define, even if it could hear it. The second kind of music, according to Boethius, is known, I quote from him, whoever penetrates into his own self. One may describe this kind of music as the principles of harmony that exist in us as the microcosm of what is above. It is that which establishes harmony between mind, body and soul. Each of us in this sense emits a sound, a quality or lack thereof. This is why music has power over us and our passionate life. Sound may influence, influence us for good or ill. It finds a correspondence or echo within us. A true composer and his interpreter heals, integrates us. The knowledge of this kind of music comes through, strangely enough, silence. It is known in a meditative and contemplative disposition. The composer hears it within himself and then has to, to describe it, transcribe it, sorry, through the science of music onto the staves of his score. The third kind of music, instrumental music, that which we play according to Boethius and Dante and those in this tradition, is based on setting into movement by plucking, bowing, blowing or striking the proportions of the creative order admitting harmonic sound as well as sometimes discord, which, according to the Western classical teachers, resolves eventually into harmony. For example, that remarkable resolving chord that concludes Johann Sebastian Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. Let us get, attempt to give another illustrative example from Bach's Matthew Passion. Few moments in that great work move us more than the moment when St Peter goes out and weeps bitterly for having denied his master thrice. The contralto sings an aria of profound beauty and the melodic line is accompanied by a violin obbligato and our hearts 
likewise are torn apart as the following words are sung. Have mercy, Lord, on me, regard my bitter weeping. Look at me, heart and eyes, both weep to thee bitterly. Have mercy, Lord. It's number 47 in the full score. So Dante, Bach, Meyer, and all in this tradition would say to us that the, mu that the music is an echo of the language of the angels which moves us to tears for they too weep at the passion as may be seen in icons or in Giotto's famous Pietà in the Scriveni Chapel in Padua. The language of sound, music, is intimately related to the passionate life, as I've already said, for good or ill. Music evokes the passions within us. We know the quality or lack of it from the sound we hear. Music changes with the moral and ethical changes, or mœurs, as the French would say, taking place within a, a society. I mean, you've only got to look from roughly the Beatles onwards to see the deep change that has taken place. And it, this is reflected in the change of popular music. Now, St. Clement of Alexandria in his exaltation to the Greeks, declared that music received its origins from the muses. He takes pains to make clear for what reason the muses themselves were invented. They were so named apoton muthai, that is, from inquiring, because, as the ancients would have it, they were the first to inquire into the power of songs and the modulation of the voice. There's a clear relationship between words, muse, and music. And like the music, muses, the angelic intelligences, intelligences weren't invented. They were created and are. Now Maya in his notebooks helps us a little bit more when he says Music is of the divine essence. She fell from heaven, that is, the divine energies, onto the earth. She was before things were. But to return to Bach's great aria, why are we so deeply moved? Because at some deep level, the angelic language has been spoken to us. Bach has become a recipient of an echo of the angel's language. Bach and Dante would have explained the matter somewhat as follows. True cosmic music is that of the angels. This is echoed through the science of music that is based on sacred proportion and number. The sound made on instruments catch these angelic presences and communicate to us at a deep level.
Again, Meyer in his notebooks helps us when he writes, A genuine composer regards music not only as a work of or object of delight, but as a revelation of the most efficacious way of development and culture, even the beatification of humanity. Music is therefore the art of representing the soul's sensations <coughs> by the means of sounds, awakening analogous sentiments and also thoughts. This requires a genuine, genial composer, a performer capable of explaining the beauties of the composition, and a public capable of knowing and listening to the beauty of the composition and its execution. I've got another quote on the meaning of music in this sense. Would you like me to read it, or are you feeling you've all had enough? One? More. More, all right. This is again, this comes from Meyer's um, lesson that he used to read to his pupils on... Um, on uh, the genius of music, of uh, the poetic, um, the gift of, of poet, the poetic gift. It reads as follows: The poetic imagination, according to Plato, whose thought has influ influenced Aristotle and Jainas and all the philosophers who have followed his wake, is a universal mirror in which there is an infinite reflection of objects, the origin or prototype of which wish to be traced out in the extension of the universe, thus becoming represented in a most living and faithful way. When poetry is understood in this way, as an Im imitative art, she no longer presents insurmountable obstacle, obstacles to those who undertake to seek the origin of the mind. We may deduce from such a way of thinking that the poetic genius is derivative. The faculties of the poetic genius must be therefore directed by the accuracy and the intensity of their own perceptions. The faculties may be thus invoked on a level of supernatural powers and ministers of incantations to the purpose of teaching, upholding, awakening, and beautifying. Such faculties appear to the profane and uninitiated as strangely far from the sphere of possibility and the creation of a, uh, and the creation of a virtually divine mind. A truly poetic composition is therefore an act which excites constant wonder, not only through the mediating of the imitation of multiple forms and eternal energies of nature, but also through the mediation of most dissimilar things, of sentiment, of character, and of ideal essence. I don't think music's taught like that at, school, at academies today, but it certainly was a about 1808, 1812 to 1830, when Meyer was teaching in his school. 
Take another example. Take Brunelleschi's Pazzi Chapel in Florence next to the great church of Santo Croce. All its architectural proportions reflect musical proportions. The patterns of the heavens and nature, what is above and what is below, it is a harmonic structure. Music played within the building is based on the same science. Our bodies in their ideal proportions reflect these instruments and symbolic order of number. The sound produced from the instruments penetrates our ears and finds sweet concord within our soul, mind and body. True architecture in this sense, as opposed to building heaps of bricks or slabs of cement or streets of tarmac, is based on harmonic proportion and is therefore, as Alberti said, frozen music, which flows the moment we walk before its façade or within its rooms, halls and spaces. We are said today on Radio 3 that we experience the tingle factor. Better still, the language of the angels has found an echo within us. Much masquerades under the label of the tingle factor. I am afraid much is no more than the noise and cacophony of hell as described by Dante. So true music for the soul is interrelated to movement, to dance, and both emanate, according to Dante, from light, from the logos, from the word, the creative word. Thus our music making is the art of declamation. Dante, Bach and Meyer would say, along with countless other composers and musicians, that our whole life is musical, refined if our soul is true, distorted if our soul is out of harmony, and worse still, it may be possessed through music, by, by no, through, through noise, through cacophony, by demons of the passions. And the three great Canticles of the Divine Comedy illustrate this teaching. And so, as we glance at the structure of the Paradiso, we must be prepared to contemplate much more than the inconstant in vows in the heaven of the moon, the ambitious in the active life in the heaven of Mercury or the lovers in the heaven of Venus, and the theologians, teachers and historians in the heaven of the sun, or the martyrs in the heaven of Mars, or the just in the heaven of Jupiter, or the contemplatives in the heaven of Saturn, and so on. Dante's tale is but a rich harmonic shell holding harmonic sound, or may I call it a rich, rich kernel.